0: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Meddling mystery, the FBI says Iran and Russia are trying to influence U.S. voters. Debate day, Joe Biden and Donald Trump in their final face-off tonight. And electric earnings, Tesla reports a fifth straight quarter of profits. It's Thursday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move wherever you are in the world. You join us on the countdown to another debate night here in the USA. It's in the immortal words of anchorman Ron Burgundy. We hope things Stay classy this time around. We'll do debate prep this hour with 2016 Republican presidential candidate Carly Fiorina. That's coming up in the show. In the meantime, emergency aid talks continue in Washington. The problem is there's no sense of emergency, at least from Senate Republicans, and that makes a deal look all but impossible at this stage. Combine that with what I mentioned there, election interference fears, and you have a recipe for global stock market weakness, and that's what you see in front of you right now. Former presidential candidate Andrew Yang said to us yesterday, if you remember, unless a deal on this financial aid comes soon, struggling Americans will have to wait until February at the earliest. And as we keep saying, help is needed now. A further 787,000 more Americans filed for first-time benefits last week. That's actually the lowest number since March, but it's still historic numbers and still more than 23 million people collecting some form of unemployment benefits in the U.S. at this moment. The Federal Reserve warned yesterday that consumer spending is now leveling off in parts of the U.S., a worrisome sign that household savings that built up during the summer may now be depleted or at least being depleted. On the brighter side however better than expected earnings are lending some support to stock markets at least tesla up four percent pre-market after posting record sales and they doubled down on their delivery numbers guidance all the details on that coming up in the meantime paypal hit a record high wednesday too this after announcing it will support cryptocurrencies on its platforms including payments on Venmo. We can now vemo each other bitcoins bitcoin hitting 2020 highs on the news yesterday but it is taking back some of that slightly today and from crypto to cryptic u.s officials confirming that foreign powers are once again meddling in the u.s elections let's begin the drivers there federal intelligence agencies say russia and iran have acquired u.s voter data In an effort to influence the election, the evidence suggests Iran was behind a campaign of threatening emails sent to voters, allegedly from the far right group, the Proud Boys. Alex Markart joins us now. Alex, great to have you on the show. Sadly, we have to separate the politics here from the intelligence. And that's what I want you to do first. What exactly did the intelligence agencies tell us yesterday?
1: Well, Julia, this was a remarkable press conference last night at seven thirty here on the East Coast. Uh, in part because it was so hastily assembled, but then also the cast of characters who showed up. These are the most senior national security officials uh, in the country when it comes to safeguarding the elections. This was led by the Director of National Intelligence, uh, John Ratcliffe, as well as the uh, FBI Director, Christopher Wray. And what they laid out, and uh, for the first time, was attributing to Iran and Russia uh, essentially the stealing of voter registration data. This is the first time that. They've that they've announced anything like this uh, in the 2020 election. Uh, so Russia and Iran have gotten a hold of some voter registration data. Uh, there had been a, a reported intrusion on election support systems around two weeks ago. Uh, we believe some of the da- that data came from there. And Iran used some of this voter registration data, according to these officials, to send out emails, threatening emails, uh, to, to voters. Uh, we've already reported that, that they were in Alaska and Florida, threatening them uh, that if they don't vote for Trump, there will be consequences. Uh, One of them that we saw says, uh, vote for Trump or we will come after you. Uh, Here's a little bit more of what the Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, had to say last night. We would like to alert the public that we have identified that two foreign actors, Iran and Russia, have taken specific actions to influence public opinion relating to our elections. We have already seen Iran sending spoofed emails designed to intimidate voters, incite social unrest, and damage President Trump. So there, Radcliffe saying uh, that the emails were meant to sow chaos, to uh, infuse the process with more division. Uh, it should be noted, Julia, that uh, none of these officials have said that any votes were changed, that there was any meddling uh, on that front. Uh, it is rather problematic in the eyes of some, particularly Democrats, uh, that uh, that Trump's name was mentioned there. Um, the, the argument among some Democrats is, how, how does this favor Trump uh, when... How is this against Trump, rather, uh, when these votes are clearly threatening that if, if you don't vote for Trump, there will be consequences? The, the argument from Ratcliffe there seems to be that because these emails are meant to look like they're coming from this pro-Trump far-right group, the Proud Boys, um, that that will work against Trump's favor. Uh, now, the intelligence community has said for a long time uh, that Iran is looking to undermine Trump. Uh, in this election. And this appears to be the first concrete evidence that they are offering uh, that this is the case. But again, uh, no votes changed, according to these officials. And when it came time for Christopher Ray of the FBI to speak, uh, he did tell voters that they should be confident that their votes will be counted. Julia?
0: Yes. And voters of both candidates targeted too potentially as well. Alex, some important points there as well. Thank you so much for that. All right, tonight, American voters will get their last chance to see President Trump and Joe Biden face off before the November 3rd election. They'll meet on a debate stage in Nashville, Tennessee, 12 hours from now. John Howard is in Washington for us. John, it's uh, President Trump versus former Vice President Joe Biden versus the mute button. What are we expecting tonight?
2: Well, I think uh, President Trump may actually benefit from that mute mm. button if it tempers his performance. His last performance was uh, disastrous for him politically, uh, and his advisors have been trying to get him to tone it down. But President Trump's personality is not likely to change. He is uh, bristling to go after Joe Biden through the uh, means of uh, uh, tarring his son Hunter, which uh, right-wing media has been doing as well. Uh, So I'd expect him to be, uh, uh, if not as raucous as last time, uh, significantly raucous. Uh, And the question is, is there anything he can do at this stage to change the trajectory of this race? It's been remarkably stable. Joe Biden's got a 10-point lead nationally. He leads uh, in enough states to win the Electoral College. Joe Biden doesn't really need to do anything tonight except avoid a major mistake and try to run out the clock. We've got uh, uh, less than two weeks until the election. Uh, Joe Biden's on a glide path. The question is, can uh, uh, President Trump change that?
0: Yeah, you make a great point. I think with the mute button, perhaps President Trump will allow Joe Biden to speak and perhaps then gaps will appear. Uh, But then you're asking him to change a habit of lifetime, perhaps. Um, John, talk to me about stimulus. What are we thinking here? Seems very little room to maneuver here from some of the Senate Republicans and the leadership there who perhaps are going to scotch this deal even if we get the agreement.
2: I I think Andrew Yang, uh, who you quoted before, is saying I believe that uh, if not now, then uh, likely uh, February is pretty much on target. I think at this stage, it is extremely unlikely that a deal will be struck before the election. I think what Nancy Pelosi is doing is making clear by trying to strike a deal with Steve Mnuchin and then having it stopped by Mitch McConnell that it is Senate Republicans who do not want to do a big deal, that has been true for months. The House passed a bill in May. The Senate did nothing and hoped the issue would go away. So did the Trump administration, frankly. But when the administra- when the economy uh, uh, stalled uh, uh, because the COVID uh, virus was resurging, uh, interest picked up. But the Senate Republicans, who are now expecting Joe Biden to win, are not eager to send a lifeline to the economy that Joe Biden's going to inherit. There is some... Small chance that something could be done in the lame duck, but nothing on the scale that Pelosi and Mnuchin are talking about, I don't think.
0: John Harwood in Washington there for us. Thank you so much for that. And our special coverage of the final presidential debate begins at 12 midnight, if you're in London, 3 a.m. in Abu Dhabi and 7 a.m. in Hong Kong. All right, let's move on. Tesla results electrify despite the pandemic. The company has reported its best quarterly profit yet and reconfirmed a high target for this year's sales, release deliveries. Shares are up pre market. Paul and Monica joins us now. Paul, a fifth straight quarter of profits. And oh boy, it's a tough delivery target 500,000 cars, but they say they can meet it. Talk us through with the numbers. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I mean, Elon Musk obviously has been accused in the past of sometimes uh, putting out targets for Tesla that may not really be achievable to pie in the sky. But to Musk's credit, the sales have been sizzling so far this year, and it is possible that they could hit that ambitious delivery goal. The key question, I think, for uh, Tesla investors, though, is how sustainable will the company's profits be on a long-term basis it's great that they're now you know generating net income for five consecutive quarters but a big chunk of that is coming from that you know 400 million or so in uh, you know credits that they are selling to other automakers for compliance with various carbon emission standards so that is something that I think investors are a little skeptical that Tesla's core, Sales you know core auto business can be consistently profitable.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The regulatory credits here a big part of the EPSB, which is what everyone seems to be saying here as well. What do we think going forward, Paul? do we think this ultimately means inclusion into the S p 500? Because there's a lot of people here saying irrespective of what the contributing factor here is in terms of the profits, some level of consistency here at least, is what they need at some point yeah. in the future.
3: I think to Tesla's credit, this is a company that has clearly shown that it is a leader in the electric car market, which is obviously growing very rapidly. The revenue growth is there. They're diversifying because of other businesses that they're in. Obviously, remember the big Solar City deal that they did. So I think that sooner or later, given the massive market value of this company, it would be foolish for S&P not to include it. In the S&P 500. I mean, it's already, what, how many times the size of the market value of the entire major U.S. automotive industry seems kind of silly to not have it in this blue chip index.
0: Yeah. I mean, playing those regulatory credits are all part of the game here. Your competitors pay you the money and Tesla takes the money and invests in what its factories in, in Berlin and in Texas. That's the way it works. Yeah, it's real up revenue. percent Yeah. And they're up 400% uh, year to date, that stock. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right. The most anticipated IPO of the year. Could it be the biggest ever, too? Jack Ma's Ant Group has won regulatory approval for a dual listing in Shanghai and Hong Kong. It's expected to raise as much as $35 billion, giving the financial giant a valuation of around $250 billion. Sharice Pham joins us now. Sharice, did you did you see what I did there? The most anticipated. Yeah, I have to repeat it. Um, the great thing about this is, as well is that we get a sense of the numbers here. Talk us through what we now know about this a huge IPO.
4: That's right. That's right. And it might be named after a tiny bug, but this is really a huge company. <laughs> and we learned a couple uh, little interesting things in the updated regulatory filings today. One is that they will be splitting this uh, IPO evenly between Hong Kong and Shanghai. Each of those exchanges exchanges will be getting about one point six seven billion shares to sh- to sell, and that amounts to about eleven percent of Ant's uh, total shares. IPO. Now, we know that an Alibaba wholly owned subsidiary um, will be buying 730 million of the shares on offer in the domestic market. So about uh, nearly half of the shares that will be offered in Shanghai. And Alibaba will also have the right to subscribe to additional shares so it can hold equity equaling no more than 33 percent of the company. I wanted to make sure I got that right. So they've got the right to pretty much own about a third of Ant is what we are looking at from that prospectus. Now, but let's just take a look at some of the key dates that are coming up ahead for this, as you say, really highly anticipated IPO. We've got October 22nd and 23rd. That's today and tomorrow. Uh, Those dates are bookmarked for initial pricing. Um, And then the offering announcement coming hard and fast next week on Tuesday, October 27th. Share subscription happening next Thursday. October 29th, payment for subscribed shares following on Monday, November second. And then that key date we all want to know, when will the IPO happen? Basically, Ant saying TBD. Uh, Ant saying that the company will be listed on the star market as soon as it finishes issuing shares. Presumably, it will list the same day here in Hong Kong as well. Wow.
0: Can't wait for that. It's going to be fascinating to watch and a hot ticket for the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and, of course, the one-year-old star market in uh, Shanghai as well. Cherise Pham, thank you so much for joining us on that. All right, still to come here on First Move, backing Biden, 2016 Republican presidential candidate Carly Fiorino and why she's crossing party lines and what it's like to share a debate stage with Donald Trump. And Southwest's earnings head south. The airline reports its biggest ever quarterly loss – We've got the CEO and we'll get the scoop. See with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks are set to pull back for a second day in a row. A stimulus stall, nervousness ahead of tonight's presidential debate and charges perhaps that Russia and Iran are attempting to meddle in the upcoming vote. Perhaps the cause of weakness or perhaps a half-decent excuse too. There's lots to consider. New numbers also showing an additional 7,800 eight hundred. 787,000 Americans filing for first-time jobless claims last week with little hope that new fiscal stimulus help will be coming along soon. Numbers did improve from previous weeks, though, as California began reporting results again after a multi-week pause, and that adjustment matters. That said, Fed Governor Lau Brainard yesterday called lack of new fiscal aid the biggest U.S. economic risk. In other words, an entirely preventable self-inflicted wound. It's a great way to say it. The muddled economic picture continues to weigh on financials too. Many big banks have slumped since reporting the third quarter results last week. Julian Emanuel joins us now. He's Managing Director and Chief Equity and Derivatives Strategist at BTIG. Julian, great to have you with us on the show. You say it clearly in your note that the debate may be in Nashville tonight between the presidential candidates, but it's the debate that's going on in Washington, D.C. that matters for investors.
5: Absolutely, Julia, And, and we would agree with Lyle Brainard 100% is that if you don't get stimulus going through the system between now and year end and we think that the likelihood of doing stimulus. After the election. Is a lot lower than perhaps the market is implying right now- um, you know you stand the chance of- uh, the recession coming back. Obviously not the degree that we saw in the second quarter but negative growth is definitely something we do not want to see.
0: Julian, you mean that the chances of getting some kind of an agreement and it enshrined into law between the presidential election and before the inauguration is is lower. You mean we're going to have to wait perhaps almost a year before we see further action if you have to wait until February at the earliest?
5: Well, uh, look, I- again, the politicians over the last 24 hours have been talking about putting something together. then maybe having the vote after the election. And we would suggest that between the Supreme Court battles and what is shaping up to be a contentious election, which is either gonna be unclear, disputed, or both, the odds of actually making legislative progress unless the market uh, trades low enough so that it becomes more imperative and the economic numbers continue to soften, Um, We just don't see that happening. Uh, We don't think it's a realistic uh, assumption.
0: I mean, 2020 has proved, at least as far as aggregate stock markets are concerned, that stock markets and investors can wait for that stimulus until the beginning of next year. The problem is Main Street, Real Street, the real economy can't. And you're talking about negative potentially GDP numbers if we go back in into recession. How does that play out in terms of the stock market and what we see for investors because i made well, the point there as well the banks are already pricing trouble a lot of it
5: yes the the banks really are the only sector that are telling you that there is a higher probability of a recession uh, for however however brief a period next year and our concern is you know the the narrative has been okay well if if the virus uh, clamps the economy down again Interest rates stay low, people buy uh, the work from home stocks, technology, uh, FANG, et cetera. The problem there is those stocks have moved so much, they're so far ahead of any earnings potential next year that we don't see that that gives the market room to run. And when you combine it with the uncertainties, again, politically, and with regard to public health, you know, that's the recipe for, uh, call it a 10% correction in the equity markets.
0: Wow. I mean, as you say, it's a, and it's a cliche, but it's a stock picker's market, certainly. You also wrote a note called Gimme Guidance and actually pointed out the fact that the guidance coming from companies in this earnings season yet again perhaps outweighs in terms of stock market reaction, whether they hit or miss in terms of the numbers. And that's coming through again.
5: That's right. Um, it, there's a, a large swath of corporate America, various industries, companies of all market sizes that suspended their guidance because of the virus. And what we found is those that have reinstated their guidance not only have outperformed those that have not, but have outperformed the S&P 500 in general. So in a quarter where what we're seeing is that because stocks are so close to the all time highs, And the percentage of companies that are beating their estimates is very high, like it was last quarter. That's not enough. However, the companies that are daring to reinstate their guidance, we think likely will be rewarded.
4: Hmm.
0: What's most important for the next six to 12 months, Julian? Is it vaccines? Is it earnings, given that you've said stocks are already over their skis in terms of the fundamentals here or the politics?
5: Uh, I would say that uh, the combination of the vaccine and the politics will drive earnings, Um, because if you look at it, the expectation for next year is that the more cyclical areas are going to have the higher earnings growth. But if we as as uh, as uh, people in, in interacting the economy don't have the confidence, to sort of set foot outside, as it were, those cyclical areas likely won't see the earnings growth uh, expected, and and that will be a headwind for the equity markets.
0: Yeah, I can't believe I haven't even mentioned uh, COVID and rising cases of of COVID-19. I think a lot of people looking at what we're seeing in Europe at this moment, and particularly given the United States followed weeks after what we saw in Europe back in March, the fear is that we're just weeks away from a similar spike, and we're already seeing it.
5: it, it, it Look, it is entirely possible. I think we expected uh, a, a resurgence of the virus uh, into the fall and winter season. But the positive spin on this is that the combination of all these risk events behind the fact that the Fed is likely to be very supportive going forward. Um, and even if you don't get stimulus now, you are likely to get it later with whatever government you end up with. We think any sell-off that you see in the near term could be a very good opportunity for buying for what's potentially setting up to be a strong 2021 on the basis of those earnings uh, growing.
0: That's interesting. Jay Powell to the rescue as always. Okay, final question, Julian. Is the market priced for a Biden win? And what happens if Donald Trump surprises here and wins the 2020 election?
5: I think it really depends on the makeup of Congress. Okay, so so it, if Donald Trump w- were to happen to win, and for some reason, and, and people aren't really talking about this, but it's entirely possible that Donald Trump could win, and both the Senate and the House become Democratic, obviously the House is already Democratic, but if you had a, a Democratic Congress in its entirety and a Trump win, That could possibly be very, very positive for markets. Very unexpected, but very positive. The president would want his legacy to be getting something done economically. And clearly the Democrats have shown a willingness to spend more, which the president has shown a willingness recently as well. A Biden victory, that again depends on the composition of the Senate. Um, The market would prefer a Republican Senate but history shows that when you get a, uh, a wave, whether it's red or blue, but if you get a wave, the markets tend to trade much, much better in the following year because something will get done legislatively.
0: Even if it means higher tax rates and higher corporate tax rates, it's a complicated right. one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. right. Julian, great, uh, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. And uh, we shall sure reconvene. After November 3rd, Julian Emanuel, the Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist at BTIG. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. You're looking at the opening bell there at the New York Stock Exchange and a muted open for stock markets this Thursday, appropriate perhaps as we head into tonight's presidential debate, where we will have muted mics where necessary to stocks hanging in there overall, despite the uncertain outlook for fresh stimulus and word that an additional 787,000 people filed for fresh jobless claims last week, new jobless claims. The Nasdaq and the S&P still less than 5% from record highs. And we are tilting into positive territory in the early minutes of trade too. Hard-hit airlines continue though to bleed cash in the third quarter. British Airways owner AIG reporting a more than $1.5 billion loss. It's slashing its flight schedule by a further 10% for the rest of the year. That takes it down to just 30%. Of last year's levels to give you some context. In the United States, two American airlines reporting a $2.8 billion loss. In the meantime, Southwest lost $1.2 billion. The CEO of Southwest, Gary Kelly, will join us later in this hour to talk about what they're seeing. In the meantime, let me give you a look at live pictures of the inside of the Senate Judiciary Committee. They have just approved Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court. The committee voted 12 to zero, setting up her full Senate confirmation vote for Monday. Ten Democratic senators on the panel boycotted that vote as expected. Now, a few hours from now, President Trump and Joe Biden meet for their final debate before the U.S. presidential election with 12 days to go. Until Election Day, more than 40 million Americans have already voted. That's equal to around 30 percent of the total votes cast in 2016. Campaigns for Biden on Wednesday, campaigning for Biden on Wednesday. Former President Barack Obama delivered a blistering rebuke of President Trump's handling of the pandemic. Look.
6: I get that this President wants full credit for the economy he inherited, and zero blame for the pandemic that he ignored. But you know what? The job doesn't work that way. Tweeting at the television doesn't fix things. Making stuff up doesn't make people's lives better. You've got to have a plan. You've got to put in the work.
0: Joining us now, Carly Fiorina. She's founder and chairman of Carly Fiorina Enterprises, former CEO of HP, and 2016 Republican presidential candidate. Carly, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for joining Great to us. Great you, Julia. I think we should start with the debate tonight. You know what it's like to be on a debate stage with President Trump without mute buttons. Let's be clear. What's your advice <laughs> for Joe Biden tonight?
7: Well, Joe Biden cannot respond to everything that Trump says or does. Trump will be Trump, which is not helping him, I will say, these days. Uh, Biden needs to be focused on what he wants to communicate. And I think what he wants and needs to communicate most of all is his character and how he will problem solve as a leader. It's very easy to get distracted by Donald Trump. There are things that Biden will need to respond to, but not everything. The more the American people take a look at Donald Trump, the polls suggest the less they like him.
0: You know, it's interesting. That's a decision that you've made. And as I mentioned, Republican background, former Republican presidential candidate, I vividly remember reading the article in The Atlantic where you said, look, I I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. Carly, talk to me about that. What was it? Does it come more down to the person rather than the politics
7: and the policy? Well, let me say that I believe and have always believed that leadership matters, that character counts, particularly in a president of the United States. And Donald Trump has failed every test of leadership during his tenure. And his character has become crystal clear. And so my vote for Joe Biden is not only a vote for a leader and a man of character, humility, and empathy, but also a vote for the soul of the nation and the direction of the nation. Let me also quickly say that I don't agree with all of the Democrat Party's policies, but neither do I agree with all of the Republican Party's policies. Uh, Immigration, to cite one example, but what I do believe in is leaders collaborate to solve problems. And Joe Biden has demonstrated his willingness to collaborate with all sides to actually make progress and solve problems. And that's what we need our president to do now. Joe Biden needs to unite this nation and then work to solve our very serious problems and address our opportunities. And that can only be done if we are united and collaborating in a bipartisan way.
0: Yeah, you being united has to be considered a a policy choice as well, I think, at this moment. And Carly, to your point. Yes. But we are are, uh, three months on from when you made that decision. And the difference, I think, between then and now is that we do have a greater sense of what those policies look like. And you mentioned there are policies on both sides here that you, you don't agree with. Can you hand on heart say that when you look at some of the policies, particularly for the business sector and perhaps the impact on smaller businesses in particular, if you're raising personal tax rates, for example, that the economy will be stronger under Joe Biden than perhaps it would be under a continuation of uh, President Trump?
7: Well, yes, I think the answer to that question is yes, because let's just start with the fact that the coronavirus epidemic is not under control. In fact, as you well know, we are entering a very difficult and dangerous period. And so businesses of all sizes, but particularly small businesses and working families are getting crushed. And Donald Trump seems to just want it to all disappear. In fact, he, he's told us it will just disappear. We know it won't. So we'll just start with that. Secondly, however, I do think that both parties have not paid sufficient attention to small business. Small business is the engine of growth in in this economy. There are 100,000 small businesses that have closed their doors permanently since this pandemic began. And I do believe, based on what he has said, that the relief packages and the economic policies that a Joe Biden will pursue will be more helpful to small business. And finally, if I can just add, Julia, You know, lack of access to quality education is an economic issue. Lack of access to infrastructure is an economic issue, and those problems need to be addressed as well.
0: Carly, that's such a great point, and it's something I'm also incredibly passionate about. Do you trust? A democratic-led government and Congress to fix some of the blatant problems in the education system state by state because one could argue that those problems have been around for a really long time and successive democratic-led governments have not fixed these problems either.
7: Exactly well look let's be frank Julia politics and politicians have failed over and over again on both sides of both parties. It's partially why Donald Trump was elected in the first place, because people were sick of the failures of the political class. I will say, honestly, I think split government is usually more productive, Uh, and so if it were me, I would say a Democratic-led House, a Republican majority in the Senate, and a uh, Biden presidency would be ideal. However, I think it is possible that Donald Trump has become such a drag on the ticket that Republicans will lose their majority. And I think it's why you see Mitch McConnell racing this Supreme Court nominee through. I hope, I very much hope, that Joe Biden, as President of the United States, will understand that his job is not to be the leader of his party. His job is to be the leader of this nation. And in that role, he needs to tackle festering problems of education, of social justice, of the environment, and yes, of the economy as well.
0: Yeah, you're the president of the people that didn't vote for you as well as the president of the people that did. Carly, great to have you with us. Thank you. Carly Fiorina, the founder and chairman of Carly Fiorina Enterprises. Thank you. Former CEO of HP and Republican presidential candidate. Great to have you with us. All right, Trump versus Biden, oil versus renewables. The choice Americans face will shape the U.S. and the global energy industry for the future. And that's next. Welcome back to First Move. As the candidates gear up for the U.S. presidential election debate in a few hours' time, one of the biggest differences between them is energy policy, and it's a pretty clear-cut choice. John Defteris is with us now to discuss. John, the Democrats here believe cleaner is better. It also can be more costly. What did you find?
6: Well,
8: that's an interesting way of putting it, Julia. There's a lot of uh, shade, shall we put it this way, between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, but when it comes to energy Policy. I think the best way of saying it, there's a stark contrast. Uh, Donald Trump likes to be number one in oil, as you know, and thinks that climate change is a hoax. Uh, Joe Biden embraces the science around climate change and even embraces the energy transition. I like to call it uh, black versus green, the traditional black gold versus new green tech. Let's take a look. During the Trump era, oil remained king. U.S. production surged to a record of nearly 13 million barrels a day, And the president wore it like a badge of honor. The United States is now the number one producer of oil and natural gas
2: anywhere on planet Earth.
8: This played well in the oil and gas states in America's southwest, in the Rockies, and as far north as Pennsylvania, in an industry supporting nearly 10 million jobs.
3: That fits in with this administration's worldview. They were inclined to reduce regulations on the the oil industry uh, to... Partly to allow it to produce more, but also to to gather political support from it.
8: The U.S. produced so much oil and gas, Trump was out to challenge Russia and Saudi Arabia overseas.
3: The export of oil and gas has been seen as a tool, a geopolitical tool, even a weapon, Uh, this concept of energy dominance.
8: That strategy of growth at all costs came crashing down when COVID-19 triggered an oil bust, taking down over 500 energy companies with nearly $300 billion of debt. This year's wildfires on the West Coast and hurricanes hitting the Gulf of Mexico raised awareness of the growing threat of climate change.
3: When Donald Trump thinks about climate change, he thinks hoax. When I think about it, I think jobs, good-paying union jobs that put Americans to work.
8: The former vice president has pledged to not shutter U.S. shale, but the winds of change would blow in the direction of renewable energy. A Biden presidency could accelerate what is known as the energy transition, away from fossil fuels. He is pledging $2 trillion to a green deal to speed up innovation and investment into clean energy. Is this the election that defines the energy transition? Adnan Amin is the former director general at the International Renewable Energy Agency in Abu Dhabi.
4: I've talked to him personally on a number of occasions about renewables. I know that he has a passion for this new technology and the, the potential that it has, and the potential it has to create jobs and wealth in the United States.
8: So, too, does Wall Street, with money flowing into renewable energy companies. In the last month, rising star Next Era topped the market cap of the once mighty oil and gas giant ExxonMobil. And when it comes to international policy, Trump was proud to pull out of the Paris Climate Accord in 2017, saying it was a job killer. Biden has pledged to leap back in.
4: I think there is a very important signal when we're facing potentially catastrophic changes related to climate in the near future, that United States leadership in technology, in a political sense, uh, in bringing other countries along, but mostly from my point of view, in inspiring others about what can be done is sorely needed today.
8: A high-stakes election that will also define the fate of fossil fuels and clean energy. And the world is watching very closely, Julia. Because of COVID-19, we've seen uh, countries within the European Union, China, Japan in the last 24 hours all announce their plans for net zero emissions by 2050 or before that. Uh, They're waiting to see after November 3rd and early 2021 if it's a Biden presidency when they go back into the global arena for renewable energy and uh, the climate change uh, package from Paris.
0: Yeah, and businesses carry on regardless. Cleaner is better. It just has to be. Yes. Thank Mm. you so much for that. All right. So to come a record loss and a plea for help. We speak to the CEO of Southwest Airlines. Stay with us. That's next. Right, eight months into the pandemic, airlines continue to count the costs, Southwest reporting a record loss of $1.2 billion in the third quarter. Although it says demand is up modestly since July, the company says numbers will remain fragile until we get a vaccine. Gary Kelly is the chairman and CEO of Southwest Airlines, and he joins us now. Gary, can you hear me? Yes. No, I don't seem to have him. Nope. Okay. We don't have him. We will try and get him. Let's see if we can come up with something else. Let me see if I can. Um, let me see if I can bring you around the world and bring you up to speed with some of the other stories that we are following. The Czech Republic is tightening restrictions as it fights a dramatic surge in coronavirus cases. The country registered nearly 15,000 new cases in its latest update, a daily record. Under the new measures, only essential business remains open, and there are curbs on people's movement. Nigeria's president is calling for calm after violent protests rocked Lagos following the shooting of peaceful demonstrators. Several buildings were set on fire, including this TV station. Amnesty International says 12 protesters were shot and killed by security forces Tuesday. Thailand's government has lifted an emergency decree that banned protests, saying the situation has been resolved. Last week, demonstrators camped outside the prime minister's offices in Bangkok. The protesters have given the Prime Minister a three-day deadline to resign. Right, Voters across the US aren't leaving anything to chance with this election, turning out early in record numbers to cast their votes, with more than a week and a half left until Election Day. Early votes are up nearly 180% from the 2016 presidential election. Here's our Pamela Brown with more.
9: With the election less than two weeks away, voter intimidation is coming to the forefront. Election officials in Florida and Alaska went to the FBI after dozens of people reported receiving emails threatening to vote for Trump or else.
1: I think calling it out and letting it be seen for what it is will hopefully encourage people to ignore it.
9: The email was made to look like it came from a far-right group. The Proud Boys, the extremist group Trump failed to disavow at the last debate. Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. But Proud Boys have denied involvement, and a CNN analyst found the emails were actually sent in a sophisticated way, routed through foreign servers. More cries of possible voter intimidation in Miami. A police officer in full uniform wearing a Trump mask inside a polling place called out by the mayor.
0: His actions have violated departmental policy and he will be disciplined.
9: And in Memphis, a poll worker was fired for asking voters to turn their Black Lives Matter shirts inside out. This particular incident was the bad behavior of one poll worker. Tennessee laws ban any clothing worn to polling places that endorses a political candidate or party. Social justice messages like BLM are allowed. But overall, early voting remains in high gear. More than 40 million ballots have been cast nationwide so far. It's clear many Americans have been relying on the post office to deliver their votes. But as Election Day approaches, Michigan's Secretary of State is encouraging voters to turn ballots in personally to drop boxes or their county clerk's office if they can. There are a lot of uncertainties and variables with the Postal Service. A new Post Office Inspector General report finds the Post Office never investigated how controversial cuts to service in the summer would affect mail delivery. My office used the CARES Act funding from the federal government to install close to a thousand over a thousand drop boxes all around the state for that very reason. The Postmaster General, who has defended the cuts as non-political, postponed the changes but on-time mail delivery is still suffering and triggering new lawsuits. In North Carolina, an appeals court upheld the state's deadline to receive absentee ballots nine days after Election Day, a decision Republicans are signaling they'll challenge at the Supreme Court. The second win for Democrats? On Monday, the high court handed down a ruling allowing mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania to count if they're received within three days of November 3rd. Given the issues with the Postal Service and how close we are now to the election, election experts say that your best bet if you haven't already requested a mail-in ballot is to go vote in person early. Pamela Brown, CNN, Washington.
0: Pamela Brown, there, and Southwest reporting a record loss of one point two billion dollars in the third quarter. Gary Kelly, the chairman and CEO of Southwest Airlines. Gary, great to have you with us. I'm sorry we had connection issues. We have very little time, but talk me through it. And I know the most important thing is a plea to government for more support.
6: Well, thanks, Julie, and yeah, sorry for the connection problems, but glad to be with you all. Uh, yeah, it's it was uh, it it was it. Obviously very affected by the pandemic, and business is off uh, close to 70% year-over-year, year, so I think that's uh, uh, not new news, uh, but it, hopefully the worst is behind us. Uh, things are improving in the fourth quarter. I think we'll have better revenues. I think we'll have lower cost uh, and then obviously we're hopeful that uh, trends will continue. But in any event, we have a long way to go uh, before we get to a vaccine and herd immunity and then begin to see people behaving more normally in terms of uh, uh, travel habits. And, um, you know, Chairman Powell says that the economy is definitely in need of further stimulus. I agree with that. And then within that, uh, I think it's very important that the airlines continue to operate. Uh, We uh, are dependent upon our people to operate, and so that uh, support would be very meaningful Uh, in terms of uh, sustaining jobs and providing service uh, into next year. I think that there's a decent chance that if we get the payroll support through uh, March of next year, it will be in good shape uh, to uh, survive all of this. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, obviously a record loss, and we're going to do everything that we can to uh, mitigate those losses going forward.
0: And I know you did everything you can to hold on to employees, too. It was a short message, Gary, but it was a powerful one. And we hope you get the support you need. Come back and talk to us soon, please, and we'll have a longer conversation. Gary Kelly, Chairman and CEO of Southwest Airlines. Thank you, sir. And that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chesley. Stay safe. Watch the debate tonight. And we'll see you next week. Take care.
3: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
5: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN Flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking: "Call Me Country."
3: Beyoncé and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com/callmecountry.